welcome to the uh, alpha release of our podcast. Uh, I'm Ajay. I'm Scott. Blank, to be determined. <laughs> Insert podcast name here. Uh, Ajay, you are known for your contrarian views about the place of Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip in the Sorkin oeuvre. <laughs> uh, in, in brief outline, what are those views? Well, I think uh, it is probably, and look, I think, uh, you know, later Sorkin more generally has been uh, unfairly maligned and is being held to, uh, you know, is being held to standards that uh, are both fair and unfair, but I think, uh, you know, a writer of his stature attracts, uh, attracts that kind of criticism. Studio 60, I think, uh, really was screwed by history in several ways. Um, first, it had the misfortune to debut at the same time as 30 Rock, which was... A vastly superior show in every way. It, 30 Rock is brilliant. It stands up well. It, uh, you know, it hasn't aged. Uh, I... Uh, been re-watching it and it is still uh it is still one of the best shows that was ever on tv i mean a little bit like wkrp it manages to be about its time and timeless it's 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 absolutely brilliant and and to be perfectly fair we can't say that about studios but you know in context i think one of the uh you know one of the great uh sort of headwinds that studio 60 was sailing into was that it came out in 2006. And, you know, as we'll recall, like 2006 is when the the fever of the Bush years has broken, right? We, but not everybody knew it at once, I think. No. Right? People had thought it had broken in 2004, hence the crushing disappointment of the carry loss. And so I, my, my sense in 2006 was we kind of had to pinch ourselves because nothing had materially changed. In fact, if anything, the surge right in Iraq had made it seem like he might be due for a recovery. But in fact, the bottom had fallen out and it wasn't coming back. No, I, so, so that's that's right. I mean, 2004, I would say, let's let's call 2004 really the darkest period, right? In, in whatever sort of, uh, however you want to graph this periodic function, uh, we are at, uh, you know, we are at the, the nadir... Um, uh, unfortunate choice of words uh, in 2004, in, in, in 2004 uh, but post Katrina and post sort of the uh, you know accretion of just all of the mismanagement of the wars, you have you know culminating in the in the 2006 elections the sense that the tides are turning, and Studio 60 comes out pretty much at the same time that we're we're starting to see electorally. So I think it's actually early early November, late October, if I if I have my timing right. Um, and uh, it is a show that is decidedly about living through the early Bush years. It's about living through the darkness of feeling like you're in this political this dark political tunnel where there's no end in sight. And they made that flesh by casting Chandler Bing in a dramatic role, <laughs> right? As as a sort of alcoholic survivor of his own Bush year uh, period. That's right. Well, he's 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 you know because he's Chandler, he's a reminder of yeah. uh, the good times we had in the late '90s. So you're right. Semiotically, it's watching uh, our our the great times that we had in the late '90s being washed up 
and, uh, you know, diminished by circumstance. Claim the Friends theme song made more sense as a theme song for Studio 60 than for Friends. <laughs> in, in hindsight, uh, that is... You know, we'll just have to we'll have to try scoring that and see how seeing how that works. We, we don't do scores anymore. <laughs> That's right. And either did Studio Sixty. It was just uh, it was just a title screen. Oh, I, I was trying to make a CBO joke, but that, but that one works too. <laughs> That's uh, true. <laughs> this so week we are certainly beyond. Yes, the CBO is is becoming vestigial. Um, so that was the conceit of the show. That was the zeitgeist of the show. But why is it that you thought the show was uh, successful against all evidence to the contrary? Well, so, so you know, it, it's something that feels successful now. And I think what it captured then, which just didn't feel that strong, was the spirit of what was it like after 9-11 when Ari Fleischer was telling people to watch what they say and Bill Maher lost his TV show on, I think, ABC at the time. Mm -hmm. And when it felt like the entertainment industry was tacking sharply to the right to try to capture what they felt was this new uh, and permanent Republican majority and cater to it. And so, uh, you know, what I think Studio 60 is really like great at getting is what is it like being part of these institutions that are kind of mindlessly trying to cater to uh, what they see as this like sea change caused by the median voter. And uh, that didn't feel as true in 2006. So you, you touched on something that I want to re return to in another show. So I'm just going to uh, footnote, <laughs> footnote it for hyperlinking later, which is the extent to which the personality type of liberals and conservatives and kind of the neurosis of dominant liberal personalities has created this situation where even when the Democrats win every election in terms of the popular vote, there's an anxiety on the left that, in fact, we're a tiny elite minority and we can't be too confident in thinking that people share our views. Conversely, cosseted little small town people who never meet anyone different from them are just sure that they speak for the median perspective of all the people they never want to talk to. That's, I think that's a really good point. I think, you know, it goes to the sense that, like, what you're looking at is a kind of, like, human distillation process or, you know, where uh, if you were the kind of person who felt out of place in a small town in Iowa, you're prob you probably grew up to be a coastal or Great Lakes elite. And, uh, and, and you know, on the flip side, uh, what you've seen with the people that stayed in Iowa is without, uh, you know, w without the diversity of views, you have a more concentrated set, uh, a more concentrated worldview. Yeah, I mean, th this really is another topic, which is sort of the elitism of the newspaper editor versus the high school newspaper editor versus the elitism of the high school quarterback, right? And one of them goes on to be uh, a neurotic uh, newspaper reporter in a tiny apartment, and the other one goes on to be a Chevy dealer, right, right. in the hometown. And those are very different kinds of elite positions to occupy, and they are align with partisan affiliation as clearly as anything could, right? And and they just trace all the way back. So, uh, but 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 you want to talk about a show that is all neurosis and Southern California and Aaron Sorkin and and Aaron Sorkin and and, and people hated it, you know. Uh, again, in comparison to Thirty Rock, but I also think because it missed, you know, it, it missed the wave, right? And the wave was the sort of two thousand one 
to really like mid 2005 wave of oh we're trapped in this trapped in the darkness of being a political minority we've even lost the entertainment industry which now is chasing the ad dollars of middle america to the exclusion of whatever its sort of liberal values were supposed to be and you know i think it captures the entire like post 2016 election spirit very well of are we normalize like if Trump is president now do we have to normalize him do we have to start treating this as but but, but hold on connect that up for me so that you, it's doing that about the 01 to 05 period from the vantage point of 06 from you're saying knowing how it turns out well i don't think it so it must have been written and you know without yeah, written without earlier, right. must have been written a little bit earlier so it's written in the spirit of darkness but it's coming out in the, you know at a time when things are changing and so it's really missed its moment it's it's a a yeah. show that's missed its moment b it's a show that just happens to have like you know it's, it's got this twin that is that that's like the power of tina fey and um and, and 30 rock is brilliant so that i think it loses on the merits there what i think it captures and captures really well is that th that zeitgeist again a feeling like all is lost we are in a permanent minority mode and um, we are trying to find ways to cope to reach across the aisle and connect with you know the central romance of studio 60 right is between uh, our, our, our sort of grown-up drug-addled Chandler and his uh, evangelical on-and-off girlfriend. And they are coming from completely different worlds uh, politically and socially, but a central part of, you know, it's one season is they're, uh, they're coming back together. Yeah, I, I continue, notwithstanding the eloquence of those points, to hew to what I think are the very conventional views, which was that it was um, vain and self-satisfied, that the evangelical character was nothing but condescended to, and the, the core storytelling defect, that it was incapable of presenting a plausible sketch comedy show at its heart— which is not a problem any other show about a comedy show has shared that I can think of, except the Gary Shandling show in a very strange way. Uh, that the, the show within a show is unwatchable, and yet we're not supposed to think that, that we're supposed to respond to it differently. It would have been as though in The West Wing, if all of the speeches had been ridiculous clunkers rather than kind of eloquence fantasies. And so yeah. I just thought that the, for one thing, it was always straining so hard to pack in what it was trying to do through these mouthpiece characters who, I mean, to Sorkin's credit, at least talked a little bit differently from one another. I think the stock criticism of Sorkin, right, is that, that all of it, all, yes. that they're all Sorkin, um, I mean, which is interesting. And by the way, I didn't see Anomalisa, oh. but apparently, right, every... There are only two voice actors, yes. right, or three doing the entire well, movie. And, and I think the, I actually even think the faces are all based on. And they're all the yeah. same face, right, or something like that. Uh, so I appreciate your appreciation of what Sorkin was trying to do. It still feels to me like a fighting the last battle exercise. And, and, I, and I think, and, and so, you know, if there's one thing I could say to sort of underline 
my defense and to really point to why it fits into a category of, uh, I would say, art that has suddenly become relevant again, you know, in the wake of really not just the election, but even the year preceding that, yeah, yeah. which which was all a wake-up call uh, that, uh, that, that certain things were changing or at the very least needed to be revisited, which is that it, it put you in the place of, uh, it, it put you in the darkness of the Bush years in a very, very, I think, stark way. But not uh, stark is maybe not the right word there. I think it put it put you there along with the attendant dilemmas, both personal and public. And its failures can be well. Actually, I'd say that its sort of latter day success in my eyes, and and maybe in my eyes only, um, have to do with those elements which really at the time didn't get much uh, play in the you know critical and popular certainly response. So. Have you learned anything about the appropriate response to our current moment based on having that reaction embedded in amber now from ten years ago? Well, uh, you know, I, I think it's taking, uh, it, I think it's taking sort of these central and repeatedly underlined uh, sort of moralizing point of Studio Sixty, both literally and seriously, which is that entertainment conglomerates are going to oversteer towards catering to the median electoral voter, and because of the way electoral votes are distributed, uh, that's going to mean assuming that the entertainment industry really needs the dollars of voters in uh, Youngstown, Ohio, uh, rather than, uh, you know, the entertainment or the advertising dollars associated with the popular thing, Yeah, but one interesting thing that's changed since then, somebody else pointed this out on Twitter, and I don't know where I'll find it. Uh, Go ahead. Name the major media companies that are controlled by a dispersed group of public shareholders now, rather than controlled by an individual or a family. That's true. So you've got Comcast, NBC... Controlled by a family, the Dolans control. The Dolans control primarily, but I think so. I think the family control doesn't actually dilute that just, argument. Just trying to say the regulatory. Uh, okay, but but ten years ago, ABC was an independent company, right? Um, uh, ABC Cap Cities, I think, still ten years ago. Right. Uh, uh, NBC was part of a giant conglomerate. Yes. GE. Um, Time Warner AOL, maybe even still then, was a diverse conglomerate. You had Yahoo as an emerging media company. You had NB, uh, uh, Microsoft still thinking that it was going to get into media, so right. on and so forth. All of that has disaggregated and consolidated so that now Disney and Time Warner, for the time being, though it is a much more limited purpose vehicle that basically yeah. just has a bunch of TV networks, are the only ones. The Murdochs control right. all the Fox channels. The Dolans control NBC. The New York Times company is family controlled. The Washington Post is owned by one guy as a hobby. Oh, yeah, Washington Post Company also used to be, right, right a broader right. public company, although I don't know if the Grams well, still had like, some kind of control. And WGN, too. I, oh, I mean, oh, right, like, and all those. about, like, the syndicated. Right, so Sam uh, Zell yeah, bought up yeah. all the Tribune stuff. Right. So in the last 10 or 12 years, and I'd have to see the timeline, you've gone from a place where the entertainment and news industries had an interesting combination of the family-owned companies like the Chandlers with the Times and the Salisbury's with the Times and the Grams had some kind of control over the Washington Post, I think, to now, really, that has reconsolidated largely in private hands. And, oh, and sorry, in CBS all this time, right, Sumter Redstone has basically right. uh, <laughs> congealed his, uh, his control. Personal, right. Or his daughter. Or, or, or caretaker. Or, something. 
Yes. So it's interesting to think about the motives of media. It is easier to imagine that some of the conventional crassness of media will now be subordinated to the crassness of appeasing the Koch brothers, uh, looking good at Mar-a-Lago, or whatever the people who control these companies actually care about. So, uh, so I think that's certainly an element, and I think we're we're certainly seeing that with especially the uh, more overtly political content that's generated by uh, these conglomerates. But I think the, I mean, I think the more telling story is one of like this is how the industrial structure of the content and delivery industries has changed, which is that you can now have NBC, which is a loss leader for Comcast to deliver content, right? It's a, it's a broadband company that just needs to have a little bit of something in addition to all the Netflix you're watching. Yeah, though it is, that has to be an unstable equilibrium, right? That all of the pipe owners are currently trying to own some content, which they all compl- almost completely cross-license. Right. Uh, at some point, the interest has to be in having proprietary NBC content that Comcast can charge Verizon customers separately for or use as a way of... Right. Like, like who knows how this is going to shake out, but the horizontal and the vertical is in a lot of you know tension right now. No, I, I, I think that's... I mean, I, I think that's right, but I think what it tells us is that there are competing things going on, which is which makes it hard, except for the most egregious cases, to be able to pinpoint. Like in the case of Rupert Murdoch, you can almost see the uh, not. It's not even an invisible hand, right? It's right. the visible hand of Rupert Murdoch directing certain things in certain directions. I I, I think the uh, what, what that leaves is the interesting. I think uh, question of. The Simpsons, right? Fox is has been underwriting The Simpsons for years and years, and and it makes fun of Fox and doesn't make that much money. NBC like, ran David Letterman much less lucratively. <laughs> I don't know. Every time anybody brings up Murdoch, I just have to point out his ex-wife appointed Ivanka Trump as her right children's trustee. She dated Tony Blair. She may be dating Vladimir Putin. Putin that's right. They all hang out together with the other <laughs> Russian oligarchs and, and oligarchs' wives. Something's going on there. We should probably stop all this till we get to the bottom of it. Well, at the very yes, at least uh, at least until we're more confident in the uh, you know security of apps like Signal. Uh, uh, so speaking of independent media, I have to take a moment to praise the Onion. Uh, I think everyone who was paying attention was deeply appreciative of the Onion's Joe Biden character, who's hard even to encapsulate. But I think they may be off on a better foot with their Steve Bannon character. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some of the headlines, which I guess you haven't seen, from the Steve Bannon vertical. Steve Bannon marks draft of executive order he likes with noxious pheromone secretion. Steve, <laughs> ba- Steve Bannon's inflamed liver pulsing visibly through shirt during strategy meeting. Steve Bannon mixes discarded climate change report with saliva to build final wall of nest. And today, <laughs> rodent clearly making its way through Steve Bannon's body throughout national security meeting. This, that one I did see, and it's brilliant. So this sort of supernatural <laughs> slime <laughs> creature, right? Some kind of undead monster who well, consumes he's like and that excretes creature from the X Files, right? The uh, the one that builds a nest and only wakes up every eighty years or something. A particularly gruesome early episode of the X Files, and uh, it builds a nest. It sounds like the Steve Bannon of the Onion. I just I I think the idea of drawing out the 
personality traits into a kind of supernatural manifestation <laughs> is something of a lost art, right? Uh, uh, it's sort of a, a political Lovecraftianism, and I think it's, I think they're doing a phenomenal job of it. And I I hope they don't have an underlying theory. I hope this isn't heading anywhere in particular any more than Joe Biden polishing the Trans Am uh, was heading anywhere in particular. But I think it's just brilliantly done. Well, the, you know, the, the brilliance of Joe Biden polishing the Trans Am was that it tapped into, I mean, it, it A, created something, but it also tapped into a, not necessarily a suspicion on the part of the readers, but it didn't seem all that, it, it didn't seem all that, far from what you'd imagine Joe Biden to be. But uh, no that's right, but it somehow it never fell into the cliche of being a particular kind of thing, right? That's he right. wasn't a redneck exactly. He was I mean there were elements of hustler, there were elements of deadbeat, but there were also kind of elements of what seems like a real Joe Biden trait, right? He was, a he sort was of a like tri-state Bruce Springsteen a sort fan, of simplistic right? compassion <laughs> and yeah, exactly. But it but you know it was also so constitutive, I think, especially for yeah. Biden as uh, as a new vice president who, I mean, you had a sense for who Joe Biden was, but you didn't have, like, he, he wasn't like Obama where you had a, his, you know, Obama's visibility meant that you came to him with a lot of baggage that you were projecting onto him. Uh, Biden, even though he's had a long history in politics, I don't think uh, a lot of people had that same we're, we're bringing that much to the table when they were trying to like make sense of who he was and the onion provided a very very powerful heuristic which i think in turn influenced him like his own sort of creation of himself as vice president was certainly influenced by i him. yeah do you think it had much to do with his decision not to run uh no i i, I mean i don't i i think that the there's certainly an element to Joe Biden's political persona of not being taken seriously, um, but that can, that can maybe be traced back further than the Onion. If anything, I think the Onion built his brand. You know, I, I can say the campaign 2012, Biden visits uh, to Ohio. You know, like people were expecting the aviators. You know, there yeah, were people yeah. that had uh, that were wearing sort of uh, Joe Biden T-shirts that were more influenced by the Onion than they were by anything the campaign was putting out. Did they have sleeves? These <laughs> T-shirts. Uh, I can only speak for some of the shirts, <laughs> and the ones that I personally saw did have sleeves. But I would like to think that there were more in the audience. Because I spent I some time see. in Youngstown at your behest, and I definitely <laughs> saw some things that didn't have the sleeves they ought to have had. <laughs> so, so speaking of Bannon, I think one of the things that has been, has been brought home to me uh, since this term began is the extent to which the millions of people in the executive branch are arrayed around the idea that there are decision points and there are escalation points that really are supposed to go to a person at the top. And I guess in the Bush administration that was divided between the president and the vice president. I take it during the Obama administration, there were falling off points. There were people who knew what to bring to him and what not to bring to him, but it was all very much with a model that there was a person at the apex. Trump does not seem capable of making decisions based on alternatives, and so 
do you have any sense of how the apparatus is going to react? I mean, we've heard a lot about sort yeah. of the idea that Priebus and Bannon would be the two different devils on his two shoulders pulling him different directions. But I think that's that model seems to be wrong entirely. There, there isn't a decision-making process. That re- and, I, and I heard uh, this week that they're talking about revising after the Yemen strike that they're going to revise the decision-making structure even for those covert ops so they don't go to him at all. And I don't think it's that they would go to Pence. And I assume they just go to Mattis or somewhere in the National Security Council. So right. so, so, you know more than I do about how the NSC apparatus really makes decisions. How is it going to function when figuring out what to tee up for the boss in order to get something clear back over the transom just isn't an operative model anymore? Well, I think we're seeing. I, I, I think we're seeing the results of that right now, right? I mean, I, you know, I, and I'm not the first person to say this, but um, I think that a lot of the leaking that we've seen is strategic leaking by departments who are trying to get things in front of a president that they know watches the news. So they're leaking to try to get a me- effectively what in the last administration would have been, you know, you get a memo through the NSC process to get it on the president's desk. Um, now people are leaking that draft memo to get it onto Fox News so that he can watch it uh, on his golden toilet in the morning and then tweet about it. And that tweet ends up being, you know, what would have been a statement of conclusions coming out of an NSC meeting. Now it's that tweet, right? So what we're seeing is the leak uh, report tweet feedback loop is is what has replaced uh, what was a very orderly NSC process. But there don't. So that would make sense to me if some of the tweets were directive in a comprehensible way. But I'm struggling to think of a tweet that anyone could reasonably have interpreted as having resolved a policy dispute in the administration. He puts things on the agenda as though he doesn't set the agenda in other ways, right? Like he's still right. using Twitter as though that's his best tool, both for getting information and for putting out. Um, so I, I, it still sounds like to me like the model is kind of broken because that leak may get something to his consciousness, but what it doesn't do is bring back down the clarity you need. Oh, it's so uh, don't get me wrong. It's completely broken. I mean, the fact that they've they've tried to jury rig this parallel process that involves leaks uh, only speaks to their. La- I mean, the the lack of confidence in very very essential departments and you know cabinet principles uh, in any other mechanism of getting things to uh, the president in a way that that's going to get them a decision. And, you know, I, I think the fraught tenure of Flynn as national security advisor um, certainly contributed to that. And having the separate principle in the person of Bannon, who it's not clear, uh, it, you know, I, I imagine it's not clear to many people where the jurisdictional lines are. Right. And when you run things through one process as opposed to another, um, and that that can't help. Well, I mean, one of the things that's striking about that and the idea that there are jurisdictional lines that I want to get to, um, in the last few administrations, this was probably less true early in the Reagan administration, but really ever since then, there were large bodies of like-minded people who were available to staff the agencies, and it didn't require... Um, 
you know, medieval Florentine style family ties to understand <laughs> that somebody was trustworthy, right? Like somebody who was secretary treasurer of the Northwestern University College Dems, like could just be trusted to be the deputy social secretary, right? Or to be a, a Cambodia desk staffer at the State Department, and like they'd understand that their job was to read the New Republic and watch MSNBC or you know whatever it was, and kind of get the drift of the administration and keep an eye out for things and sort of uh, try to execute the peripheries of of the executive will. So far as I can tell. Bannon's insurgency is pretty sui generis. He's brought over a few people like this Miller kid, and there is a sort of sense in which it's the Sessions office taking over, I guess, a lot of the policymaking apparatus. But how many of those people can there be? And how many of them can they trust not to be Prebisites or Rubioites or some other kind of recognizable species of establishment Republican? Um, and and if they can't, if there aren't utility players who can just be presumed to fill the slots, uh, how is this going to scale up? Well, I, I, I think the answer to your question is it's not so far. I think it's right that you've seen this. So you've seen this tension between, uh, you know, the people that they can bring in as sort of early campaign loyalists. But even in what you've seen with sort of the whole... Uh, alleged Elliot Abrams, Elliot Cohen mix-up, which is hilarious, is that uh, there is, you know, look, if you were an establishment Republican, you probably took a position and... You realize you're the second person named a JK who I've had a <laughs> podcast with, okay? Name <laughs> confusion is a thing. It's, you know, th- there are certain predispositions to, uh, to doing things based on names, at least according to... Uh, there was just an article in, uh, I don't know if, I can't remember where it was today, on how determinative names are. And I'm just, oh, I'm no, reminded. The nomen est omen phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm reminded of a uh, book I read by one of my college mentors, which pointed out that the author of a treatise on forestry in, you know, sort of, uh, late medieval England was a man named John Manwood. And uh, I feel like that that's, that's a pretty good example. Not really sure what Bannon means, but if that is his real <laughs> if name. that is his real name. No, uh, so I think look, they have they have a severe trust deficit in how they're running things, and this is causing them to do like uh, you know uh, the one very predictable thing they're doing. And if they'd had like a Jim Baker on their staff. Uh, would have been able to counsel them, uh, you know, at least to say this is coming. Let's let's work our way through what's otherwise going to be a like natural but stupid process, which is let's do the opposite of everything the last administration did because we ran against the last administration, yeah. and uh, they are by definition feckless. And can I just say the extent to which that I think that is happening, right? That the, the what the taskers tend to be right are find the last thing that was issued in 2008 and go to that, right? That's the explanation right. for the fuck-up with the um, NSC staffing. Absolutely. Copying and pasting, uh, you know, a pre-9-11 document. Yeah. And so so I think 9/11. that's... So, so I think, they're, they're one, they are overcorrecting for the perceived wrongs of their predecessors, which is maybe a natural thing for an administration to do, but it is... Uh, that's, that's a... 
avoidable error yeah. when you have uh, people that have served in administrations before. But my sense is that that is all kind of previsite mistake making, and the, the you know Bannon's some kind of nihilist, right? Like his endgame here is something pretty close to after the Sino-Iranian War, like we get a new constitution or something. Like there's a really radical endgame play going on here, I think. And so I, I just don't get the sense that an argument that he's not running an efficient interagency process and he could get what he wanted by running one uh, is going to carry any water with him because I think what he wants is something that just is not achievable from here through any operation of the existing policy levers. I think he knows that. Well, I, I don't know if he does. So, so I guess you have two you have two options within that framework, and I mean I think I agree as to sort of what his end game is. But one is he ha he is an optimist who thinks he has many levers from his current perch that he can use to accomplish that end goal. And the other is that he's uh, he's an unrealistic, you know, guy who's out of his depth, who thinks that, who really has no way of getting from point A to point B. But could he pay a bunch of people in China to go from point A to point B for him and somehow sell them? That was, sorry, that doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, that's how he tried to make his second fortune. He tr he tried oh, that's right. He was involved in like online gaming. Yes, he tried uh, to roll his right. Seinfeld syndication money or whatever it is into having World of Warcraft gold farms. Right. Well, you know, I imagine content farms uh, are the new gold farm. Yeah. I mean, I think he gets a lot of credit for having a theory. And, you know, this is the sort of University of Chicago fallacy at work, which is the person that has a theory with a lot of explanatory power seems to win even when the theory doesn't ever work in reality. And Bannon, in the chaos of the current White House, is that guy. He's the guy who can, like, he can last through a Chicago faculty workshop because his theory is, you know, it, at least he has an answer to every question you're going to pitch at him in, in, in that mm -hmm. workshop. But he, it doesn't matter whether it works or not. Everybody else, you know, the, the, the sort of, if we want to treat the previous wing as sort of the, like, pragmatic establishment wing it, it is it is so striking to me I mean, there, there's a kind of parallel and this is mean you know obama despite who he was the republicans insisted on seeing as their idea of a bad black man in i think the same way they insist on seeing trump is a rich man which he isn't bannon is a brilliant systematic thinker which he isn't you know as everybody said uh you know trump is a poor man's idea of a rich man a dumb man's idea of a smart man a weak right. man's idea of a strong man they are and and this is obviously related to all of the other um unmoored from reality critiques of the republicans that you get from I guess John Dean and Norm Ornstein and everybody else, like there's no way of marking their beliefs to market anymore. <laughs> and so they're real suckers for marketing, yeah. right? Sorry, you know, sort of bad plan words. But I mean, they just don't get past the bumper sticker or, or right, the, the perceptual story. 
I think that, I mean, uh, no, no, that, that's completely right. And it's funny that you even have this sort of intergenerational thing going on where you've got... Where they, where they didn't hire the old anti-Semites like Jim <laughs> Baker or something else. Well, and, and who was it? It was Malik, right? The guy who uh, was Nixon's Jew counter. Yeah. Who Slate will, you know, every couple of years, uh, you know, revisit no, that was, those that was Tim Noah's Fred Malik? Co- yeah, but that was Tim Noah's cause. Oh, and he's not right. in Slate Tim anymore. Noah's, yes, He's the labor right. reporter at the it's New Republic. too bad because, you know, Fred Malik is someone I think about a lot. And I wonder, I often wonder what he's up to so i mean this is this is a related point and it may be too systematic uh but related to the prebus ban and jurisdictional fault lines you know one thing you could see the last two administrations as having done bush and obama is having strengthened what is called the presidential branch of government at the expense of the traditional executive branch which is to say the non-independent agencies so uh, the State Department, I think we both observed in the last eight years, and I take it this had deeper roots, uh, going back to the Bush administration. The State Department is kind of mirrored inside of the West Wing, inside of the EOB and and the NSC, so that it is operated by remote control by a smaller team. A lot of things that used to be DOJ decisions, right, are made in now White House Counsel's Office and and places like that. Interagency Lawyers Group. Interagency Lawyers Group. I did not observe the DPC playing the same role on some issues, but maybe on others it did. So you have that trend already in place of kind of the weakening of the cabinet secretaries and the policymaking apparatuses in the departments. Pentagon may be different, I don't entirely know. And then you have somebody like uh, Bannon come along, who, you know, you have this contingent, right, conjunction of like a Bannon and a Trump. So Bannon could have ridden in on the coattails of somebody chaotic and xenophobic, but a little bit competent. Mm-hmm. And Trump maybe could have come in with somebody like Manafort, right, who, you know, somebody who's corrupt and co-opted, but knows how to run an organization. You have this contingency of a nihilistic Leninist, uh, of a president who can't make, really, you know, can't make any decisions or organize anything, um, which is, I think, inevitably going to result in the weakening of the presidential branch. And so what, what results from that? Does the, does, is it the deep state? Is the deep state strong enough and independent enough that it then pulls that power back? Uh, is there going to be a seesaw back to the agencies, or is it just I a mean, power vacuum? What are the ways that could play out? So I think that's a really, really important observation because we've certainly seen an accretion of power and staffing, and uh, really the prominence of the NSC has increased certainly over the past two administrations, really maybe following its fall from grace during Iran-Contra. But... I think part of this just tracks the imperial presidency generally, which is if the public is going to hold the president accountable for uh, any sort of public policy issue or foreign policy issue, then the White House is going to insist on a greater amount of control over those issues so that when it is held accountable, it has, uh, like, it has done prophylactically what it can be done and then it, that that it's in the loop right. enough to respond. I think that's a natural part of the cycle and look if 
you know, p part of part of what Flynn came in saying was he wanted to streamline the NSC. Look, everybody who's been outside of the NSC on an NSC process, and that includes myself, like, yeah, you think the NSC is too big. You think that it's duplicating too much of what uh, other agencies are properly doing on their own. And Flynn was one of those people. But, you know, the dynamics of political accountability being what they are, uh, look, it wasn't Mattis that caught flack for the raid in Yemen. Yeah, yeah. And it's not going to be, I mean, Tillerson seems to be pretty much an invisible secretary of state. So he's not going to be catching flack. He certainly isn't right now on the many foreign policy blunders right. that, we've, uh, that we've had. And so I think the sort of well-intentioned, one of the rare things that I can ascribe to Flynn as well-intentioned, um, sort of vision of, you know, power devolving to agencies as it where it properly belongs is probably going to be one of the casualties, one of the earliest casualties of this. But I think the, this experience for the Trump administration taking a lot of incoming on foreign policy issues is going to lead them to a NSC, like, you know, an NSC heavy model of the interagency process. And that, that being said, th th there, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to wed myself to that. The alternative is it is very clear that we have a president that doesn't think a lot about execution, that isn't isn't sort of giving direction to agencies at the level that they're used to uh, receiving it at. And if that's going to continue to be the case, then sure, and I, I think you're seeing this at DOD already to some extent, that they're going to become more uh, independent and they're going to, you know, it's, it's a cliche to say nature abhors a vacuum, but like bureaucratic, you know, like yeah. the bureaucratic voids are very quickly filled. And I think that uh, those who are savvy enough in this administration at the non-independent agencies to seize that back are going to be seizing that back because right now is the time to do it. I think that's very possible, but I do think that it's it's not it's not zero sum, and it can be negative uh, output, right? If there's there could just be an absorption of churn that doesn't have payout, right? If you still have uh, the bottlenecks at the executive in the presidential branch of OMB and OIRA and so forth. Uh, if all you've got is less understanding between the ultimate OIRA gatekeeper and the grunts who are doing the work, right, less is going to come out. And I don't just mean less like regulatory productivity, but just less of whatever, right, deregulatory, whatever they want to do. I, I just have to, so, so the Hegelian synthesis on this, I think, <laughs> is one of my common points, which is the British do it just so much better which is by having many, many fewer political appointees, but then having them out in the agencies, right? There aren't 500 people working at number 10, but there also right. aren't 80 political appointees in the foreign ministry. So you can have a permanent bureaucracy, and then you can have a small group of directly accountable political advisors who are in the ministries. And then what you have is political accountability for the ministries. And sure, you've got a different idea of, of cabinet responsibility rather than the unitary executive. And so there, there are reasons that this happens, but um, it's just such a better system. Well, no, I, I think that's a really good point. I mean, it's inter so, so it'll be interesting to see over the next several months, but you know, even years, to what degree Trump's 
failure or lack of interest in filling political positions at agencies. From what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing, certainly, uh, there are vacancies all over the place at pretty in, in roles that were pretty sort of essential political. Yeah, I, I will not be. I will not be shocked if Congress just changes the Vacancies Act to allow the people who are now there as you know beachhead temporaries to just limp along a lot further than 120 days because I think they are in no position to hand things over to new political. I mean, we have agencies where there are not even beachhead politicals in place. Yeah, and and and, and so again, that lack of interest might. You know, you have certainly at uh, certain departments, you know, at state and uh, treasury, certainly, and at justice, you have a stronger bench of career appointees who uh, have served through multiple administrations and are more than capable of sort of and and have, you know, have enough of a sense of sort of what an agency needs to be responsive to to run those agencies just fine. What I would worry about, though, are the departments where priorities change much more rapidly with uh, turnover. So, like the Commerce Department, where the agenda is kind of created, you know, I mean, look, there's a certain element of a sort of permanent commerce agenda, but a lot of it turns over within administration. And that, and labor, and, you know, so I'd put pressure on that. I, I don't have a fully worked out typology, but I would say that there are there are a lot of different points on that spectrum. There are places where the agenda is relatively steady state and the ship turns slowly. Um, DOJ criminal division, for example, right. right? There are places where the agenda changes in kind of large moves. Maybe commerce is one of those. And then there are agencies where... Uh, one side or the other existentially disbelieves in the mission. I think that's true of a lot of what labor does. I think it's true of a lot of EPA, interior, um, and so on. And so there, um, letting the bureaucrats go on autopilot is a defeat in some cases for any incumbent party because their whole agenda with the agency is to shut it down or reconstitute it. It's, you know, so, so I, I, I actually couldn't agree more, and that's a much more nuanced typology than I was providing. But yes, I think that's, I think that's right. You have the and so, so. What's curious is a sort of shrinking range of in between departments, yeah, where yeah, yeah. Uh, you care but you don't care too much. State used to be one of those, <laughs> and and state's huge. And for people who haven't worked at state like myself, you know, state is kind of this terrifying Death Star that uh, is able to able to sort of crush your uh, what you're working on from afar but you know if you have an all-powerful nsc uh you can really run circles around state and so it just really it remains to be seen if you've got a passive secretary there and you've got uh you know you've got a career set of like very very capable career people who are Mm -hmm. ducking out or just aren't on, or who are very reluctant to sort of engage with the new regime. Yeah, we'll see. Well, I mean, we'll see where it falls on that spectrum. Right. We can always revisit this. Yeah, I think we. I think we. I think this is going to be to some degree an evergreen and a yes, an evergreen and a perennial, which are different things. Payroll taxes on robots. It seems like an idea whose time has come, or will come, or will have come. So, uh, so I actually think it's an idea we should be taking seriously, which is at some point 
we're going to have to deal with the fact that productivity gains from robots are going to be immense. They are also going to be concentrated. Like the, you know, the, the wealth that's created is going to be incredibly concentrated in the owners of those robots, the creators of the algorithms those robots are used, assuming, I mean, like, assuming that they're not the same people for a moment, but more likely than not, they're going to be the same entity. Interestingly, the same entity, but not the same people, right? The people right. who are going to write the self-driving algorithm uh, at Uber or Tesla or whatever are going to be multimillionaires. They're not the guys who are going to be the trillionaires. I mean, well, I, I would actually suggest that we are going to be the ones writing those algorithms. We just won't know we're doing it, right? Because of machine learning, yep, yep, we're yep. going to be going about our uh, daily lives. Right. Uh, they're going to be learning how to generate algorithms out of those, and we will be contributing, again, through uh, end-user license agreements in the most <laughs> part, um, to, uh, again, this immense concentration of wealth that you're going to have. And this is a problem that, you know, is as old as Aristotle. Like the, the problem of what do you do with extra people? Complicated, uh, fraught with really, really weighted. I think, you know, Larry Summers had a piece today on opposing the taxation of robots. And again, the headline, which he didn't write, but uh, it's, tell it's telling because it, it's very telling of sort of where people's minds are at on this, is don't tax robots, they create wealth. And that strikes me as something that we really ought to revisit. Trade creates wealth. Automation creates wealth. And the justification so far for why like creating wealth is great is, you know, if you're an economist or you're a Chicago person or whatever, it's mm -hmm. in theory, the people who are benefiting, the, the aggregate wealth that's being created is being redistributed through some mechanism. Yeah. And we have not had a functioning mechanism for redistribution right. for a very long time. And so at what point do we give up on trade, you know, on, on sort of selling people on trade agreements because aggregate wealth is great? Right. Um, you know, or selling people on like, oh, no, innovation is great because aggregate wealth is great. We don't have functioning. We don't have functioning channels for redistribution. So, so look, you've got conflicting models, it seems to me. Uh, so when we talk about automation creating wealth, we're really talking, I think, about a special case of total factor productivity yes. increasing. And, and the thought is that we're due for a big boom in productivity, Right but that it is going to be a boom in productivity in existing industries, transportation, um, non-construction manufacturing, agriculture, and certain kinds of low- and mid-skill services, call centers, and so forth, right? That's right. what robots are going to do. Um, they're going to drive our cars. They're going to drive our trucks. Um, maybe they'll help bathe and um, provide companionship to our elderly Um they will star in a few more of our movies, right? And we've had increases in total factor productivity before, right? Those are generally thought to be great because they increase the mean standard of living. And then we worry about divergences between the mean and the median. And there are different views about the amount of inequality 
that is appropriate to suffer in order to have the capital structure that leads to the increases and uh, and you can have a view that uh, what gets redistributed is is a sort of bread and circuses type thing, or you can have a view that what that gets redistributed is a kind of real wealth, right? And so the redistribution of the war surplus in the form of suburban land and homes and cars we think of right. as good, and the redistribution of the post-90s surplus in the improvement of video games and dating apps we see as not as good. And of course, my bias is here to have a substantive theory of like human flourishing that's going to undergird all that and that it's right. not all, it's not all transactional. But, but what is it about the idea of robots doing our jobs that makes it different from other booms in total factor productivity? So I'm not sure that it's, it's qualitatively different. Right. I think what we might be looking at is something that's not so different from the late 19th century, early 20th century uh, boom in productivity that really uh, hit farmers mm-hmm. or at least like agricultural workers. Right. Yeah. And uh, you, you can look at what we're seeing now globally, really. It's kind of a replay of the William Jennings Bryan uh, populist, uh, you know, uprising of. Like productivity boomed, it was great in the aggregate. A lot of people uh, were disadvantaged by it, and uh, as long as you're living in a world where people's voices matter, right? So like a non-feudal, mm-hmm. sort of nominally democratic system, that's going to lead to an upheaval. So I don't think it's actually that different. I just think that what we're yeah. seeing now is similar to the populist upheaval after sort of like yeah. agricultural right. productivity took off. Right. I mean, as it turns out, there was a kind of urban and suburban frontier for those people to move to, right, that we weren't sure was going to be there, and, and, it, and it kind of worked out. I mean, the, 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 the thing you see out there is not just that we tax robots, but that the taxation of robots is how we fund universal basic income, right? Like that's kind of well, one— right idea, right? And I guess as a question for another time, and I'd love to bring in an economist to ask, why do we have to pay for a universal basic income? Why can't we just make up the money to do it? And wouldn't that just dilute it out of... As a matter of monetary policy? Yeah, wouldn't that just dilute it out of the owners of capital in the same way as... it? it, Right, if the point is that you want to give everybody money even if they don't have any capital, then I don't understand why debt financing of that isn't kind of like a perfect financing scheme. But I I need somebody better to explain that to me. No, I I think that's... So that, I think, is a really, really interesting question. I would like to ask somebody that knows it better than I do, too, because that... That could fix a lot. I think part of the problem is we have a lumpy distribution of capital where we are not feudal enough mm-hmm. of a society to to be able to rely on that without disadvantaging at least enough people who vote and have 401ks right. or uh, you know pensions. So so this this reminds me of a topic I want to talk about another time which is just how incredibly the, the upheaval that we have no or have not thought about yet is what is going to happen when the baby boomers die and some of them have enough wealth 
that we have a bunch of trust fund millennials and Gen Xers, and most <laughs> of them have lived that wealth into the ground. I think we're going to start seeing second order um, uh, inequality percolate through, maybe not in socioeconomically interesting ways, but I think just culturally interesting ways. Uh, in a sort of, you know, Edwardian novel, gentleman with an inheritance kind of thing. I, I kind or of or reality continues to bite. Ooh, I would see <laughs> that sequel. Why is that not well, a 50 years later? Not, yeah. Maybe they've been doing it like boyhood all this time. <laughs> How great would that be if we learned that every 10 years, Winona and Ben and whoever I else had been getting together to shoot a dinner principle party? Already, like I, I would pre-order the Criterion DVD or Blu-ray <laughs> of that uh, on principle. I mean, I guess with the Grand Moff Tarkin effect, they could just do it anytime. Right. I guess we can have uh, robots in forever. Our yeah, no, it, it, it. But you know, I, I guess just like going back to this, I, I think we're now in a place where, as a policy matter, automation is being taken far more seriously than it was even a year ago. Yeah. Uh, as a pressing policy crisis, I think that's good. Um, I think that we should be taking it seriously, and I was concerned that people weren't taking it seriously enough. I think that in parallel, there's been this taking trade seriously, which also good, though I don't agree with all of the responses that we've had to that. Mm -hmm. But I have to say, as somebody who saw a lot of benefits in the Trans-Pacific Partnership and on balance would continue to support it, it is very hard to advocate for these things that increase aggregate wealth that seem to make a lot of sense from a Chicago faculty workshop perspective in a world in which we don't, we're just not redistributing. Yeah, well, I mean, it's an incredibly impoverished public conversation we have where, on the one hand, the education secretary, part of whose job is to work with USDA to give out free lunches, says there's no such thing as a free, a free lunch. lunch. Yes. Um, but on the other hand, the president and the other top policymakers uh, refuse to articulate public choice matters as though there are any hard choices to make at all, right? I mean, the Trump brand is basically to say there is an easy answer here that makes everybody who matters happy, and it's only corrupt dummies who are keeping it from happening, right? That is the demagogue's move all the time. There are no hard choices here. It's only corruption that keeps the obvious thing from happening. And or or, you know, or the enemy or whatever the enemy's promise, and and it's it's only in a context where you can compare evils and merits that you get to that point in the conversation. So how I despair that we ever get back there. So I think that's obviously something we should revisit later because I think there's a lot there. One thing I would say, just given what we've been talking about, is you know public choice is one of these. I mean, it's a theory. There, there's empirical work on it, and, and let's set that aside for a second, but it's a theory that if you choose to believe it, you know, and you choose to believe that, like, everything's a series of sort of corrupt deals that are going on, it is not that much of a leap to Trumpism, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just like, if, if everything's a corrupt deal, then why don't I want a guy making deals on my behalf who's going to be corrupt in favor of my interests. Yeah. And I, I look, this is one of those, you know, I think the, the people at George Mason who uh, love this to death, I, I don't think they foresaw this. And I think that there's probably some element of, oh, populist waves are good because we can ride them out to our favor. 
but there is a line to be drawn from that kind of, uh, I would say, impoverished thinking about what the public good is, but also a really, really instrumentalist sense of what uh, the political process is that leads you to a completely nihilistic outcome of uh, there is no public good. There is only the sort of personal injury lawyer as president. And yeah. that's, and I, and I, and I think that's what it leads to. So I, I so these are all topics I want to come back to, uh, the public good, public goods, which basically a different thing. Um, uh, the possibility of, of talking about them and then the, the connection of all this to captain Kirk and sort of the Roddenberry principle. I've been thinking lately about what Jane Austen has to say about how we might really see the sort of Kirk Spock divided self uh, through the lens of sense and sensibility. I think that would be a, a phenomenal topic. Uh, I, I just hope we can uh, dedicate the episode to the other uh, great commentator on Kirk Spock who seems not to have known that they existed, uh, the, the late Derek Parfit. Uh, oh, well, I'm looking forward to that. Wow. I think we're done. And with that. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Uh, uh, please keep downloading. Uh, support Squarespace, Casper Masterses, and uh, uh, Audible.com. Uh, yeah. What are the others? The Ool Conference. Um, uh, what's SeatGeek? Harry's Razors. Harry's Razors. Yeah. Warby Parker? Warby Parker. They sort of stopped doing the podcast. Uh, But mostly Squarespace. Yeah, definitely Squarespace. Squarespace.